man came to Jesus, paid a visit to Jesus in the black of night. Remember that? This man's name was Nicodemus, and he was a Pharisee. You see, the thing about the Pharisees is that to be one meant that he was in an elite class of spiritual giants who were essentially the spiritual authority on every single issue on the face of the planet. At least that's how they thought about it. And you have to understand that when the Pharisees began some 200 years before this moment, they were actually a good thing. They actually began as zealous protectors of God's word, but now they had become something else entirely. Now they were powerful, political, influential, self-righteous, and spiritually dead. And Nicodemus was a part of that group. John tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews, and he was the teacher of Israel, which means this guy, what he was, was a quasi-celebrity. Made his living as a scholar, as a professional theologian. He was elite. He was erudite. He was educated. He was esteemed. This guy was a big deal in Israel, and every single person knew exactly who he was. And yet here he is, here he is, at night, under the cover of darkness, knocking on Christ's door. And you remember how he opened the conversation, don't you? He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. We know this, for no one could do the signs that you do unless God were with him. Wow. Wow. Impressive. Well done, Nicodemus. Well done. You are so insightful. You are so clever. Did you figure that out on your own? What does he want here? Why, why begin the conversation this way? Maybe he's looking for applause and praise and a pat on the back. Maybe, maybe. But you know what I think Nicodemus is looking for? I think he's looking for validation. I think he's looking for Christ to affirm and, and validate his righteousness. And yet, if that's what he was looking for on this night, he was going to be totally disappointed. Because Christ completely ignores his flattery and his gushing adulation. And with his sovereign, piercing, all-seeing eyes, peers down into the very soul of this poor, deceived Pharisee and proceeds to sink his entire world. Remember what he said in direct response to what Nicodemus said? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that word born again, that's the issue. That's the issue. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you see that sovereign miracle of being born again, that is, understand this, that is at the very heart of the theology of John's letter. Being born again is at the very heart of the theology of John's letter. No less than 10 times in five chapters, ta John talks about this new birth, and it is so foundational to everything he says. In fact, it is so foundational to everything the Bible says about salvation. We need to take an entire sermon and talk about exactly what it means. But you understand that many people in America, they assume, they assume that because they were raised in a Christian home, 
that that makes them a Christian. It doesn't. Many think that doing an altar call after a conference or a concert or after a sermon, that that makes them a Christian. It doesn't. Many think that simply praying a prayer when they were little or asking Jesus into their heart is, is proof that they, were, that they were saved. And that is not proof necessarily. And many just assume that because they were baptized, that surely this must mean that their salvation is authentic. And it is not proof necessarily. Because at the end of the day, what ultimately and finally determines if you actually possess salvation is if you have been born again by the living God. And you know that you're born again because the signs of being born again are just so obvious. You were dead. Now you're alive. You were blind, but now you see. And there's no mistaking that kind of transformation. And what I love about the new birth, also known as regeneration, what I love about this is not only that it displays the sovereignty of God in our salvation, which it does, and it is glorious, but also because if we get this, if we get what the new birth is, it changes everything about how we do life and church and ministry and family and evangelism and everything else. In fact, put it this way. Should we get this, should we come to grips with what the new birth is, it is the very foundation of our hope, of our holiness, of our humility, and of our happiness. I'm serious, I mean it. Should we come to grips with what the new birth is, with what regeneration is, it is the fountain of our hope, of our holiness, of our humility, and of our happiness. Therefore, that means if you're looking for any of those things this morning, hope, holiness, humility, or happiness, where it is found is in the doctrine known as being born again, regeneration. And so not to overstate it, not to overstate it, but this sermon might be among the most important sermons I preach on salvation. And it might be among the most important sermons you ever hear on salvation. Why? Because the new birth is just so foundational to the Christian life. We get this, we get Christianity. We miss this, we endanger the church. We forfeit, sacrifice our joy, and we obscure the glory of Christ. So I'm going to preach theology this morning. I'm going to preach a biblical theology of the new birth, what it is, how it happened, why it matters, and how it has the power to transform our lives in a way that puts Jesus Christ on display. Here's where we're going. If you have notes, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see eight realities, eight realities of being born again that give you hope, that make you holy, that make you humble, and that make you happy. That's where we're going. Eight realities of being born again that make you hopeful, holy, humble, and happy. And yet before we see one of those, we need to ask a few questions. We need to get some things under our belt. We need to come to grips with what exactly being born again actually means. And so before we get to those realities, I've got four questions, four theological questions so that we can wrap our head around what it means to be born Again, these are on your notes. Question number one. Question number one. 
What does the Apostle John say about the new birth? What does the Apostle John say about the new birth? Well, lots, actually. In fact, no other writer, get this, no other writer in the New Testament says more about the new birth than John does in his letter. You see, like that bundle of nerves in the middle of the spine, or a power cable buried beneath the ground, the new birth is the ultimate issue underneath all of John's teaching about salvation. Because you remember that John's agenda in this letter is both simple and profound. It's very simple, but it's very profound. You see, why he put pen to paper was to give his people glad-hearted assurance and joy that if they belong to Jesus Christ, they do have eternal life. They have it. It's theirs. It is certain. It's guaranteed. It's paid for by Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, here's all of the evidence in your life of what it looks like when you have eternal life. But you see, running underneath the entirety of this letter like a gas line, the core reactor in this letter that explains where all the power to believe and obey even comes from is this miracle called being born again. Or as John calls it, you were born from God. Look at chapter 2, verse 29. Chapter 2, verse 29. Notice what John says. He says, if you know that he is righteous, that is Christ, you know that everyone who practices righteousness, here it is, has been born from him. Born from him, that's the issue. That's the million-dollar issue that we have got to get to the bottom of this morning. And you see, even in this one verse, even in just this one phrase, you see some pretty profound theology begin to emerge, don't you? For instance, you can tell that whatever being born from God means, you notice that it came before and it resulted in a righteous life. Isn't that clear in the text? I mean, John's grammar is clear and unmistakable. Doing righteous things didn't lead to our spiritual birth. Our spiritual birth resulted in and produced a righteous life, a light, righteous, transformed life. You see, being a righteous person is completely contingent upon being born again from God, whatever it is that means. That's important. But number two, second observation here. You can totally tell by John's language that God and God alone is the actor in the new birth, isn't he? He alone is the one who brought it about and made it a reality in our lives. Because listen very carefully to the wording. He says, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been, has been born from him. Do you hear that, the passive nature of the verb? The spiritual birth, whatever it is, is a supernatural work that God performed, not you. This happened to you and not by you. This was done for you and not because of you or anything else that you did to bring it about, which is really important because then that brings us to observation number three. Why do you think that birth language is so unbelievably significant? I mean, what is the significance of that birth being born language? What does that imply about the work of God that he had to perform in our souls? What does it imply? 
You know what it implies. It implies that we had about as much to do with our spiritual birth as we did with our physical birth, which was nothing. Which was nothing. You didn't cause that. You didn't ask for that. You didn't want that. You didn't do anything to bring that about. You and I were not even conscious beings in existence to will or want anything. Non-existence cannot will itself to be a fertilized egg in the womb, which means if the new birth is anything, it is a sovereign work of God that he alone can produce. And that's exactly what it is. So already, just even in one phrase, this thing is beginning to take shape, isn't it? How about another text? Notice chapter 3, verse 9. 1 John 3, verse 9. And notice what it is John says. He says, everyone who has been born from God, literally, does not sin or make a practice of sinning. Why? Because his seed abides in him. And he is not able to sin or to go on sinning because he has been born from God. That is a jarring verse, isn't it? If you have been born again by God, John says, you don't sin. That's what he just said. And even goes on to say that if you have been born again by God, that you are not even able to sin. John, what are you saying? How, how could this be? Now, don't panic. Don't misunderstand. The same apostle that said this is the same apostle who said in chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us. John clearly doesn't mean that born-again people don't sin. They do. We do sin, unfortunately. But see, the issue here is that when he says that born-again people don't sin, get this now, the tense of the verb indicates habits and patterns of sin. He means a life that is dominated by sin. A life that is ruled by sin. A life that is controlled by sin. He means a life, get this now, of willful ongoing patterns of sin that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. John is saying that being born from God, whatever that is, whatever that means, is so utterly transformative and devastating in its effects that it is absolutely impossible to live a life of guilt-free indulgence in the pleasures of sin. That does not happen if you are born again from God. Isn't that what John just said? He is not even able to sin. He's not able to live in sin. And why can he not? Because, because he has been born from God. So whatever John means by being born from God, and he means something earth-shatteringly profound, it results inevitably in a life set free from the power of sin's control. So I just ask you this morning, do you have a life set free from the power of sin's control? I'm not asking you, do you sin? I'm asking, is your life dominated and ruled and controlled by the power of sin? Because 
imperfect though you are, and struggle though you may, can you at least see something, something that at one time in your life God clearly intervened? And war though life may feel, there is something in you that is alive and you desire to be different. Because you think about when babies are born, they cry, they are hungry, and they want mom and dad more than anything else in the world. And you see, when you are born again, you cry and weep over your sin. You hunger for the milk of God's word, and you want God more than anything else in the universe. The question is, do you see any of that in your lives? A few more texts from John. Because he loves this doctrine, and he says much about it. And and you notice that we haven't even defined it yet. We haven't even defined what it means to be born from God. We're just being good detectives and gathering some theological clues, but we're going to define it in question two. But first, take a look at chapter four, verse seven. Chapter four, verse seven, and notice, notice what does John say is the evidence of being born from God. Chapter four, verse seven, notice the evidence of being born from God. He says, beloved, we should love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born from God and knows God. See the connection he makes between being born from God and love? See the connection there? Being a loving person doesn't make you born again by God. Being born again by God makes you into a loving person. Again, John, John hasn't defined what, what being born again is. He's just displaying the effects of what being born again are. And his point is, like father, like son, children born by the God of love, love like the God who make them born, is his point. And John, he's what I like to call the apostle of bottom lines. And the bottom line is, people who don't love, don't know His words, not mine. Final text from John. And believe me, when I say that this text that you're about to see is going to stagger you. Stagger you. And it is so worth our time. Look at what John says, chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, notice, has been born from God. That is a perfect tense rendering of the Greek verb. Literally, has been. The one who believes has been born from God. And everyone who loves the one who made him born also loves the one who has been born from him. Now, I'm going to get super technical here, but it is so worth our time. When John says that those who believe in Christ, that verb believe is present tense happening right now as we speak. You do believe that Jesus is the Christ. Currently happening right now. That's the state of your soul. But you see that verb, born from God, listen very carefully, is an action that happened in the past. Which means that being born from God, follow me now, being born from God preceded, came before 
and caused the faith in Christ which you do now have. You have been born again, and therefore, as a result of being born again, you do believe. That's what John is affirming right there. Being born again comes first, and then as a result of the new birth, you believe in Christ. And maybe you're thinking, well, Jared, how do I know that's true? Says you in your secret knowledge of Greek. How do I know that's actually what the text says? Well, think about it. Chapter 2, verse 29, right? Being righteous doesn't make us born again. Being born again makes us into righteous people. Agreed? Righteousness is the result of the regenerating work of God. Do you believe that? I hope you believe that. And chapter 4, verse 7, being a loving person doesn't make us born again. Being born again makes us into loving people, right? Righteousness or loving people is the result of the regenerating work of God. Agreed? But you see that the point is, it's the exact same grammatical construction in chapter 5, verse 1. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Therefore, if we're going to be consistent and we're going to let the text speak for itself, then we have to be willing to concede that just as we did not love first and then be born again, just as we were not righteous first and then be born again, so we did not believe first and then be born again. Rather, the, the grammar, John's grammar tells us beyond the shadow of a doubt that we were born again first. And then as a result of being born again, we were able to believe. Which means even the faith that we placed in Christ was a gift from God himself. You understand, we were never going to do that on our own. We were never going to believe on our own. You understand, we were born blind and dead and damned and helpless, which means that something supernatural had to take place in order for us to believe and get saved. And that's exactly what being born again produced. And maybe you're thinking, Jared, hold on a second, hold on a second. How can you say I was never going to believe? I repented. I believed. I did those things. And that's true. That's true. You did do those things. Willingly, conscientiously, and joyfully. But only after God intervened and awakened you to do them. Which is what Christ meant when he said in John 6, 65, when he said, get this, and he said this in the context of a hostile crowd who hated him by the end of this sermon. This is what he said. Just pushed it over the edge. He said, no one can come to me unless it has been given to him from the Father. <laughs> no one can come to me in faith. No one can come to me for salvation unless it has been granted to him from the Father, which means although we are responsible to do them, repentance and faith are gifts of sovereign grace. 
So even though we haven't even defined it yet, I mean, are you beginning to see just how massive what this means to be born again by God? It is the foundation of our hope and our holiness and our humility and of our happiness. Which brings us to theological question number two. Theological question number two, what is the new birth? What is the new birth? I mean, what is this thing that John is even talking about when he talks about being born from God? This, this act of God and the soul that awakens faith and results in a righteous life filled with love for other people. What is the new birth? Because you notice, you notice John doesn't ever take the time to define it for us. And guess what? He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to do that because it has already been defined in the Bible by Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Christ himself most of all. And then following his lead is the book of Acts and then Peter and James and Paul. You have to understand that, that when John talks about being born again, he is building on a theology that he assumes you already have. He's assuming that you have already read and been staggered by the catalog of glorious theology that explains and defines what regeneration is because it is everywhere in the Bible. And that's exactly what we're going to do for the next few minutes. We're going to look at biblical theology of the Bible, define exactly what does the Bible say about this thing called the new birth because you see, we know, we know when John talks about this thing called being born from God, that where he got that from was Christ himself, didn't he? And in particular, he got it from that conversation with Nicodemus. You remember chapter 3, verse 3, like we said at the beginning. Pal, Nicodemus, I just want you to know that your good works are worthless to merit and earn salvation because to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And you remember that Nicodemus was just clobbered by this. Like he was hit in the head with a spiritual two-by-four because in a sense, that's exactly what happened. And many people think, we talked about this with the youth last hour, many people think that, that Nicodemus is just totally clueless here. As if... He actually thinks that Christ is literally saying that he has to <clears throat> crawl into the womb of his dead mother and somehow reenact his birth. And I say, let's give, let's give Nicodemus a little credit here. This man is a scholar. This man is a professional theologian. He is the teacher of Israel. He has the highest level of theological, theological education on the planet, which means he's not an idiot. He knows exactly what Christ is talking about. You see, it's just that he forgot about something really crucial in the Old Testament, and you can tell because Christ reminds him exactly of what that was. Two verses later, Christ said this in John 3, verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born from water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Wait, wait Christ, what are, you, what are you talking about? What do you mean being born from water and from the Spirit? What are you talking about? I'll tell you what he's not talking about. This is not the waters of baptism. 
but the waters of purification. And this is not the human spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. And you see what I think we need to do is we need to look for somewhere in the Old Testament where those two concepts occur together, waters of purification and the Holy Spirit. Because I believe that Christ is appealing to something in the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have, or at the very least should have understood. And sure enough, there is a place where both of those occur. And it is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Turn there if you wish. If not, either way, I'm going. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Listen closely for water and the Spirit. This is God's promise of what he was going to do in the future for his people. Here it is. And I will sprinkle you with clean water. There it is. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be cleansed from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give to you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Listen to his language. Listen how graphic it is. I will take out of you the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Do you see it? Water and the spirit. Water and the spirit. Christ is referring to this text right here. God said in Ezekiel that, that being born again is the equivalent of God doing a spiritual heart transplant in a dead, defiant, cold sinner. God removes the heart of stone from rebellious sinners. He gives them a heart of flesh. He puts his very own spirit within them, which means he transforms them from the inside out. But there's more. There's more. Moses talked about this very thing in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And he called it, get this, circumcision of the heart. Listen to what Moses said to stubborn, rebellious people of Israel. And Yahweh, your God, here it is, will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh, your God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. God is going to circumcise your hearts, Moses said. Moses, that's, that's gross. You don't, you don't talk like that. You don't talk about circumcision in public. Unless, of course, you mean to illustrate what God has to do to save a sinner. And what God has to do to save a sinner is doing divine reconstructive surgery on a dead human soul, which is precisely what regeneration is. And, that's, and did you hear what Moses said would be the result? The, the outcome of this spiritual procedure, he said he will circumcise your hearts, did you hear it? So that you will love Yahweh, your God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Don't you see? You can't love God and you won't love God until God takes the scalpel of his word and does reconstructive surgery on your very soul. That's not all, because get a load of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is a, again, this is a biblical theology of the new birth. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Paul compared the new birth, get this now, to when God 
created light on the day of creation. Listen to what he says. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Do you hear what he just said? He just pointed back to Genesis 1-3 when God spoke light into existence and his point is the new life created in your soul to get you saved is just as miraculous when God spoke light into existence at the beginning. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And to get you saved, God said, let there be life. And there was life. Speaking of life, this is exactly what Paul meant in Ephesians 2.5. When he said that even when we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. What is it called when you are dead and then you are made alive? That's called a resurrection. But this is one that happens in the soul. And this is unbelievable, which is just a part of, this is why just a part of me dies inside when I hear Christians apologize because their testimony isn't dramatic or exciting. Did you ever hear anyone do that? Have you done that? And when I hear people apologize for their testimony that it's not interesting, it's not exciting, it's not dramatic, it's, it's kind of boring, it's pretty, you know, pretty humdrum, nothing really exciting happened, I just want to stop and say, what, what are you saying? What are you saying? A miracle equivalent to creation or a resurrection happened in your soul. Before we got saved, there was only darkness. There was only death. And we could not overcome or change it. And to be totally honest, we did not want to overcome and change it. But then God said, let there be life. And there was life. I don't know about you, but that is about as dramatic as you could possibly get. Don't you see what makes your testimony inherently dramatic and profound and beautiful is not your own personal story necessarily. It really doesn't have anything to do with you, but rather the sovereign miracle that God performed in you. It's called regeneration in Titus 3.5. Remember that? It's called a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which means the old things passed away, new things have come. And so think about it. Are you getting a sense of what the Bible means when it talks about this thing called being born again? New life emerged where it didn't previously exist. A new creation was made. Light was spoken in the soul. A resurrection from the grave took place. A divine surgery was done. A spiritual heart transplant was performed. All of that is what John means when he says that you have been born from God. One writer described regeneration like this. Listen very carefully. This is staggering. This is breathtaking. He says, our true and lasting joy depended on a bold and divine infringement upon our self-destruction. If we were to live, someone had to intervene. Someone had to break us. Someone had to batter our heart and capture its worshiping gaze. 
we needed to be ravished. Set free from our idols by an unmatched beauty. We didn't need a, a list of practical solutions to get our lives in order. We needed a loving God to come and invade the chaos. That's exactly what regeneration is. A divine infringement upon our self-destruction. An intervention to break us and to batter our hearts and capture its worshiping gaze to be set free from our idols by an unmatched beauty. Don't you see what the new birth is? Listen carefully. What it is is a miracle. A life-giving, soul-awakening miracle that God had to perform for you to believe and be saved. And maybe you're thinking, wait, wait a second, what about my free will here? What about that? To which I reply, regeneration is not the removal of the ability to choose. It is the removal of spiritual blindness so that you see you have no choice left but to choose Jesus Christ. Do you hear the difference? You made a real choice. And the decision was your own. And your faith was real. And it was true. And you placed it in Christ. But what you didn't realize at the time is just probably just moments before that, although imperceptible to you at the time, God did a miracle in your soul. And had he not done that, you would have never believed and been saved. So that's answer to number two. That's what the new birth is. The instantaneous awakening by God, which enabled you to see the glory of Christ and believe in him and get saved. Or, or as the hymn says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. The chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is exactly what happened to you if you are in Christ this morning. And so shame on me then if I didn't ask the question, are you born again? Are you born again? Are you absolutely sure that you are born again? Again, the reason why I ask the question so forcefully is because you realize, you realize that, that what determines, what finally determines if you actually are a Christian is if you have been supernaturally born again by the living God. The stakes are just so high. Is there any life in your soul? Or perhaps are you still a spiritually dead slave of sin trapped in the darkness with a heart of stone? How would you tell if you were? How would you know if you were? You would know by asking yourself this question and thinking long and hard about it. Here's the question. Do I find Christ to be merely useful or do I find him to be beautiful? 
That's the question. Do I find Christ merely to be useful? He is a means to my own gain. He is a means to a greater end than himself. Or do you find him to be beautiful? In other words, is he a treasure to you? Is he appealing to you? Is he enticing to you? Or do you actually believe that he kind of gets in the way of what you think will make you happy? You see, what I'm saying is the pulse of spiritual life, the, the evidence of being born again is a gradually increasing hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ through his word. Don't you see, imperfect though it may be, people who are actually alive, they want Christ more than anything. And when they don't want him, they want to want him. So that's the question. Are you living or are you dead? Which brings us then finally to the final questions. Questions three and four. Two for the price of one. These are quick. They go together. Questions three and four. Where does the new birth fit and how does it happen? Where does the new birth fit and how does it happen? And by fit, I simply mean this. Listen very carefully. When I say how does the new birth fit, I mean out of all the things that the Father had to do to save us and give us eternal life, where does regeneration fit on the timeline of events? What happened when and in what order to save us from eternal woe and despair? That's the question. That's the question. This is a really important question because depending on where you put regeneration in the timeline of events determines whether your faith is man-centered or whether it is God-centered. Whether, whether your faith exalts man and puts him on display or whether your faith exalts God and puts him on display. So let's start at the outside. Let's work our way in, shall we? On this side over here, in eternity past, when nothing existed except God, you have unconditional election. When God singled us out and selected us for salvation in eternity past and then gave us to his son. That's the very first thing that happened to get us saved. It was God's sovereign initiative and choice. That's over here on this side. That is election. But you see over here on this end, on the other side of things, is what's known as glorification, right? When Jesus Christ raises us from the dead and gives us sinless, redeemed bodies never to sin and never to die again. Those are the two goalposts of our salvation. Unconditional election over here, glorification over here, and on the 50-yard line, as it were, is the sin-bearing substitution of Christ. The death of Christ where he bought with his blood, all of the salvation blessings predestined for us by God before time began. So here's what we have. We've got election over here. We've got glorification over here. We've got substitution in the middle. The question now is, the question is, how do we get access to the treasure of salvation predestined by the Father and purchased by the Son? How do we get what Jesus paid for is the question. How do we get it transferred to our bankrupt spiritual bank account? And you know the answer. You know exactly what it is. The answer is by faith, right? We get 
undeserving, privileged access to the treasure of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Agreed? Aha, aha, but you see, you see. How did you come to believe? How did you come to believe? Was that your own idea? Did that faith, belief originate ultimately from you? Or were there other powers or influences at work in your salvation? Because you see, what if our spiritual condition before we got saved was so devastating that on our own, we were never going to turn to Christ? What if we were dead, spiritually speaking? What if we were blind, spiritually speaking? What if something as seemingly simple as believing in Jesus would have been impossible for us had not a miracle been performed in us first? See, that's what regeneration is. That's exactly where it fits on the list. In the timeline of events to get us saved, it is that which awakened faith in the first place, which if you think about it, that fits all of our experiences, doesn't it? That fits all of our personal stories of conversion. You think about it, you were listening to a sermon. You were hearing, reading the Bible. Someone was explaining the gospel to you. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, what was previously boring or offensive to you, all of a sudden, became the greatest news in the world. Suddenly, all of a sudden, the dots connected. And all of a sudden, the gospel not only made sense, but it was the greatest news in the universe. In a moment, your eyes were open to the terrors of hell and the poison of sin and the beauty of Christ. All of a sudden, your heart was awakened to the humanly incurable corruption of the human soul and your eyes were open to the matchless supremacy of Jesus Christ. My question is, what happened to you? What changed in you? What was the difference from one moment to the next? I'll tell you what it was. It wasn't you. It's the moments before you repented and believed God did a miracle in your soul that enabled you to repent and believe. Which brings us to the final question. How does the new birth actually happen? I mean, how does this work? Because because you understand, if the new birth is something that only God can do, and it is, and if our repentance and faith come as a result of our regeneration, which they do, then we have to ask, well, how does this actually work? We put it this way. What is the means, the instrument that God uses to awaken a sinner from spiritual death? How does he do that? What is the means? And I'll tell you what the means is. The means God uses, listen very carefully, the means God uses to awaken a sinner from death is his word preached through human mouths. That's what it is. That's the means. That's the instrument that he uses to awaken sinners from the dead. There's not another way. There's not another way. The dead get awakened, raised through the proclamation. 
proclamation of the scriptures to perishing people. It's, it's 1 Peter 1.23. It's in your notes. This is incredible. He says, you have been born again. Notice his language. You have been born again. Not from perishable seed, but from imperishable. That is, through, through, through the living and abiding word of God. And this was the word which was preached to you. Acts 16, remember what happened there? It's in your notes. Paul was in Macedonia preaching to a crowd of people, and there was a woman in the crowd named Lydia. Remember what happened? It says this. It says, she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things being spoken by Paul. Do you hear that? The Lord opened her heart. Meaning what? Meaning he regenerated her soul. And, and what happened as a result of the regeneration? She responded to the things being spoken by Paul. To see the word of God proclaimed and explained is the means God uses to open the eyes of the blind. 